all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're taking your calls during this hour regarding any kind of issues or healthcare topics that you might be interested in. Maybe it's something that is affecting you personally, or it might be affecting one of your family members. We would love to hear from you this morning. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you're not able to call, you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. I don't know about you, but I think I lost about six pounds last night. I was outside uh, repotting a couple of plants, and in the scope of about 30 minutes, I lost a ton of weight through sweating. The humidity was right at 90%, and uh, the temperatures, while they weren't uh, that much uh, that high, but it sure did feel like it. It felt like it was 100 degrees and it couldn't breathe. Uh, I want everybody to be careful out there. Certainly, we have hit the summer uh, norm for the South, uh, and with it come lots of things that we, uh, in addition to COVID and lots of other things that we uh, are dealing with right now, there's a lot of things that you have to keep in mind. Uh, the humidity and heat is probably one of the biggest ones. We see a lot of people that unfortunately have heat stroke or heat exhaustion during this time of year, uh, a few deaths that are related to that in the state and in the South. We want everybody to be aware of that and hydrate. Water is the preferred hydration. Don't forget about hydrating before you go out. So if you're going out for whatever activity, whether you're working in your garden or maybe you're working outside uh, to uh, get a little exercise, make sure that you're drinking some water beforehand, usually six to eight hours beforehand. And the general, uh, you know, people are like, well, how much, how much do I need to drink? Drink enough so that when you urinate, it's clear. Uh, if it's clear, that's a great old way to do that, just to um, to make sure that you're getting enough water. Uh, and unless there are limitations, I know a lot of people with heart failure and uh, renal insufficiency. There's lots of other. Uh, there's a few reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. But barring those, that's what you need to do. And then trying to limit your time uh, outside to the cooler times of the day. That's relative, of course, in the south. But generally speaking, anywhere from about 10 a.m to 4 p.m. tends to be the hottest times of the day. So you want to be careful when you're outside uh, and drinking. If you're going to be out there doing strenuous exercises more uh, or strenuous activity more than about 45 minutes, maybe a good idea to get a uh, rehydration drink, things like Powerade, Gatorade. Uh, there's a lot of powders that you can mix up. And the reason for that is you do lose a lot of sodium uh, and uh, you need to get that back in your system. There's also some carbohydrates in the form of sugars there. That's important to have both of those together because you absorb more sodium uh, when you combine it with sugar. That's why they have it in those drinks. Some of them tend to be a little bit too much sugary. Uh, if you're diabetic, you do need to, to keep that in mind. 
I uh, do want to encourage people to call in. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 It's always hard to be that first caller, but I'm giving you permission right now to do just that. Uh, we would love to hear from you. It's, sometimes it's a little bit easier to get your call in in the first part of the hour. We always run into problems uh, near the last 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes or so. It's sort of hard to get to everybody's calls there. Sometimes, unfortunately, we have to cut people off or... Uh, we have to skip a call. So uh, if you want to call in, I'm giving you permission to be that first caller right now uh, to let us know what your complaints are about anything that's going on with you. We did get an email that I wanted to address. So our email listener said that they uh, had a nosebleed uh, from late January through early February. They had a slight nosebleed, and it's the only one that they've had in their life. Um they don't say how old they are, but they say, I wouldn't know unless I missed uh, the laundry uh, hopper uh, with a used hanky because I never look at the hanky unless I folded it. So they had no other symptoms, but they were wondering because of this nosebleed and because they've never had it before and the timing of it, could this have been a COVID-19 infection? So nosebleeds are fairly common, even if you haven't had one uh, ever in your life and have one, you know, of course, the, the most common uh, one of the most common reasons for having one is trauma to the nose. Uh, second most common thing tends to be things that irritate the nasal passages. So our noses are designed to really humidify the air, uh, to provide the air sort of to slow down and pick up a lot of moisture before it goes into the lungs. So that's important in our breathing to, to uh, normally uh, have humidified air delivered to the lungs. And because of that, the way that they function is they have lots of blood vessels right underneath the skin on the inside of the nose. And those blood vessels can contract and dilate based on a number of factors. Temperature is one of them. So if you think about it, in cooler, drier conditions, if you're outside, say, in the winter and it's really cold, most people would have at least a little bit of a runny nose with that. And the reason is your nose is working a little extra hard to dilate those vessels, pr produce more water vapor in the nasal cavity to humidify that air before it gets down into your lungs. So, well, if you, if you have a lot of irritation to that area, particularly the, the anterior third of the nose, so the close to the tip of your nose, or where it's the most common area for these blood vessels to bleed if they're going to do that. Uh, of course, little kids, you know, we think of trauma as somebody getting hit in the nose, but a finger up in the nose digging around or other things in the nose can sometimes do that. If you have allergies, that's another thing that can irritate the nasal passages. And then, of course, you can have a nosebleed uh, that develops right after that. So, <clears throat> as I said, extremely common. COVID-19, you know, looked at, uh, you know, just to make sure because this is an emerging thing that we're seeing over time. There really hasn't been an association with nosebleeds. Uh, and COVID-19. Now, that's not to say that somebody with COVID-19 can't have that. There's certainly other things that could cause them to be susceptible to a nosebleed. One is some of the, uh, you know, pro-clotting uh, conditions that go along with, uh, with COVID-19. And another is just having the symptoms of COVID-19 with a runny nose or a cough. So certainly you could have it, but it's not really associated with that. So based on the email, I would say probably no, that nosebleed was not related to that. Certainly, you could have it with any infection, but uh, by itself, with no other symptoms, that's incredibly unlikely that that was caused by COVID-19. What do you do when you have a nosebleed? You apply direct pressure. So 
direct pressure to any vessel that's exposed, whether that's on the inside of the nose or maybe it's on the skin or another part of your body, applying direct pressure with uh, some type of, uh, you know, you can have a paper towel or a rag. Um, certainly you don't want to do that up in the nose right off the bat. What I've seen people do is they do it, they apply direct pressure for a few seconds and then they let off of that. Uh, you don't want to do that. You want to apply direct pressure for at least several minutes, if not longer, sometimes five to 10 minutes, up to 15 minutes. That's fine uh, to, <clears throat> to alleviate the bleeding. And what you're doing is you're trying to give the body some pressure there uh, so that it can start to lay down some of the things that it normally puts into clots to clot off that exposed vessel. Um, you can do other things, uh, you know, positional. You typically want to, you know, if you uh, um, lay your head back uh, like you're laying down, that can help. Of course, with heavier nosebleeds, that's a problem with a lot of people because you have swallowed blood and that can be an irritant to the stomach and just a nasty feeling. Uh, you don't want to go poking things up in your nose. I see people put all kinds of stuff up in there and particularly wet things. That's not going to help. Uh, if you have a clot and wipe it off, with some of those so they'll put things up their nose if you're going to do that you know like with toilet paper and then put a direct pressure that's okay but when you rip that toilet paper out you're going to going to rip that clot out and then it's going to re-bleed so you do want to be careful with that a little bit of vaseline if you're prone to nosebleeds in the nasal passages you can put it just in the again just a little bit on your finger and just gently coat the inside of your nose particularly at night if that's a problem with nosebleeds and that just keeps that uh, mucosa, that layer of, of skin on the inside of the nose from being dried out. Uh, so that's something that you can do. But as far as associations with COVID, not an association that we know about right now. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions and comments and emails about any kind of health-related issues that you might have this morning. The number to call if you would like to raise some of those questions and uh, maybe add to some of the discussion that we've had is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.com. Org. Let's go to Mary in Tunica, Mississippi. Good morning, Mary. Hi. Um, I heard you talking about nosebleeds. And uh, um, when I was a little girl uh, in elementary school, my nose uh, used to bleed profusely. Uh, 
I guess until I was probably uh, in my teenage years, and uh, they would put ice on, you know, the back of my neck, and they would, uh, you know, pinch my nose, and they would just, I would be freezing, and uh, the blood would be clotted. Well, anyway, I'm grown now, and then uh, I had a bout with cancer, and so my hematologist, oncologist, told me that I have a blood platelet insufficiency. And I wonder if there is any relationship. Yeah, Mary, there is a relationship with that, and there's reasons why that are related to how platelets work. So uh, in a nosebleed situation, uh, one of the first things to come into the area are platelets. So there are three main types of cells that our bone marrow makes in the blood. There are white blood cells or red blood cells and platelets. And platelets, they sort of, they're big cells, and then they break apart into these fragments, and those are the actual platelets. So those uh, platelets are activated in areas that have a breach in the dam, so to speak. So that if there's a blood vessel that has a cut in it and it's bleeding, their substances are released from that area and platelets are drawn to it. They're active pieces of cells and they're cross-linked. So there are little welds that weld those pieces of platelets together to plug up that hole. If you don't have enough platelets or if your platelets aren't working effectively, and there are some both acquired and, um, and congenital things that you're born with, reasons for both of those, then, uh, and medications for that matter, uh, that can cause it. If your platelets are you know, not functioning correctly or you don't have enough, then you are more prone to bleeding. And it tends to be what we call mucosal bleeding. So that's just the mucosal areas are things uh, like the nose and nasal passages of the mouth, the GI tract from top to bottom. Those are all places if you have a platelet disorder or platelets that aren't functioning correctly uh, that you can bleed more in. If you think about this, we do this all the time. We have a wonderful medication called aspirin. It's been around around a long, long time. Uh, But one of the risks with that in taking it, if you're taking it for, say, something like stroke prevention or heart attack, Uh, prevention. Uh, Sometimes it can cause platelets uh, to, well, that's the main way it works is it inhibits platelets from working correctly to to decrease the amount of clots in blood vessels. But um, in the GI tract, sometimes you can have excessive bleeding. So that's one of the risks that we always tell people about and have to look for. But that's that's probably it. Mary, I don't know if they, do they treat you for that or is that something that they're just sort of watching right now? Well, no, they didn't treat me. They're watching, but bookmark something you said earlier about mucosal areas of the body um, because, uh, you know, I'm now in my 70s, and uh, uh, two years ago uh, I, I had an intestinal, uh, gastrointestinal bleed. I required nine units of blood, um, two units of platelets, and um, uh, what's the other one? And two units of plasma. And they never found the source of the bleed. And so I'm wondering now, I was, because stroke is in my family, I was taking a baby aspirin. I guess I had done that for about 10 years. But of course, I've stopped that now. But, uh, you know, I'm just wondering uh, could that? intestinal bleed have come from that blood platelet insufficiency? 
Yeah, it certainly could have contributed to it. It may have not been everything. Sometimes what we see is there are certain collections of blood vessels in different areas in the GI tract and elsewhere that are sort of sitting there and they're a little bit more likely to, uh, to bleed. And then if you put on board something like a platelet inhibitor like aspirin, uh, then you can bleed after that. So even though they didn't find that in your GI tract, we're a little bit limited, uh, you know, particularly in the small intestine. So the small intestine, the middle portion in particular is hard to get to. Uh, they have all kinds of fancy things. They have scans that they can do with tag red blood cells. They have a pill cam that you can do. But sometimes you still miss those and you don't ever know where the source of bleeding was. You really need active bleeding for some of those tests to really see where, where a patient's bleeding from. So it, it very may, it, you know, it could have been the, um, the aspirin that was con- at least contributing to the problem. Um, but that's, that's certainly it. And that's, unfortunately, you know, that's with every medication, there's a lot of, there, there are side effects. And bleeding, uh, excessive bleeding is probably the biggest one for aspirin that we have to discontinue it or maybe decrease the dose of it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your All right, Mary. Thank you for calling. Yeah, common thing, uh, you know, certainly nosebleeds are one. I mentioned the congenital uh, causes of of bleeding. Um, There's one that uh, is called, uh, well, it's basically, I won't won't bore you with the fancy name, but... uh, there's a couple of different inherited disorders where from birth, you're more likely to bleed. Uh, these aren't the hemophilias. These are more uh, defects in the platelets in their function and sort of the structure of the platelets. All right. Uh, this is uh, Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Hi. I'd like to ask you a question about a bleeding condition since that seems to be the subject right now. I sure. read a book about the last czar of Russia who had a son with hemophilia. And uh, I'm just wondering, do you ever see any cases of hemophilia now? Because I know it was familial because they were the intermarriages, you know. But you never hear, heard about women getting hemophilia. It was always the, the boys or the men getting that. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, his, there are certain medical disorders historically that prop, that, that pop up, uh, and I've seen a lot of good document, documentaries on those. And it's interesting in royal families because there was very controlled uh, marriages that oftentimes um, were intermarried, even if they were, say, you know, the royal somebody in the royal family in the U in the in England was marrying somebody. In Russia, right. the families the families were basically very closely related, and anytime you have a situation like that, there are genetic conditions that can pop up uh, that you're more susceptible to. Hemophilia being one. Now, hemophilia, um, you know, there there are is a there are other um, uh, genetic diseases that fall into this category. So they can be X-linked or sex-linked, and that's on there on the X chromosome. So if you're male, you have a Y chromosome. Uh, and one Y and one X. And if you have to have two copies like females do of the X chromosome, then sometimes the disorder is only in females. Uh, but we have Y link. They're a little bit less likely. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways that genetically that you can pass those down. Now, even though they were, uh, you know, we don't see that as much in uh, royal families. We have less royal families now, less intermarriages like that. There's still some populations where you see that. As far as hemophilia is concerned, yes, we still see that. 
we actually have a, um, a bleeding disorder clinic uh, where we follow families. It's always beneficial to get a genetic history because you'll oftentimes pick up that other people in the family had bleeding disorders. Um, and again, it's not necessarily because they intermarried. It's just that these conditions are still out there and are still passed down from one generation to the next. As far as hemophilia goes, there's several different types, but that's more of a defect in the clotting factors. So the clotting factors, it's a really big pathway when you have a, a, a cut in a vessel and the clotting factors help sort of those cross links. You can sort of think of them that way that help a, a cascade to sort of get the blood clotted where it needs to be. And if you're missing one of those clotting factors, uh, it, it doesn't really progress down that pathway. So there's several different types of that. And again, they tend to bleed in different ways depending on where those clotting factors are. But hemophilia, one of the main bleeding uh, sites was in the joints. So you can see, uh, you know, knee, we have kids come in all the time to the ER, you have hemophilia and, and they may bump their knee doing just the normal daily active things that they do uh, or an elbow and it swells up and they'll have bleeding inside the joint space. We have a lot of good medications now used to treat hemophilia that actually replace the clotting factors. But then we also have some new genetic uh, ways, uh, therapies that they're uh, very promising that can actually help treat it at the source and provide uh, cells that uh, can produce those clotting factors. So uh, again, Sue, uh, great question. Uh, certainly, I like to read history of, uh, of medicine sometimes just to sort of see. We're doing that right now with uh, a lot of the things that happened with Spanish flu in, in uh, 1918, 1919, a lot of uh, COVID-19 analogies with that. But certainly hemophilia is one of those that you can certainly see. Uh, porphyrias are another one. You know, the madness of King George right, uh, right. is a good thing to read. And so there's a, in the royal families, there's a lot of of history of medical conditions that you can you can look at. So great question and good commentary. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I love that. There's that overlap with things. And it's interesting the way certain diseases have shaped history over time. You know, the plague. Uh, in fact, I, I was, uh, was recommended to uh, read a book yesterday uh, on, a, on a conference call um, about bubonic plague coming into San Francisco. And uh, I don't have the, the title with me. I'll try to get that if anybody's interested a little bit later in the program. But basically, uh, you know, San Francisco, uh, when the plague came in, there was a lot of racism with that. A lot of people were thinking, well, it's the Chinese immigrants, even to the point of saying uh, they were going to rope off Chinatown and burn all of Chinatown down. Um, but it's very interesting and scary to hear some of the, uh, you know, things that went on historically with a lot of the plagues. Fortunately, we haven't had to deal with that up until this year, until now. It's been a long time since we had something quite that widespread, uh, but certainly it's going to happen. Every 50 or 60 years in modern history, there's usually something like this that travels at least in an epidemic fashion or worldwide. So we got to be uh, careful. we got to be prepared for those kinds of things. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpv ring That's one 672 7464 Or if you're not able to call, you can always send an email. You don't have to do that while we're on the air. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. 
If you missed something in a program and you want to go back and listen, you can always do that from our website, mpbonline.org. Search for Southern Remedy, and you'll find an archive section that has all of our Southern Remedy shows that are archived. It usually takes about a day uh, to get those posted there, but you can go back uh, when you have some more time and listen to the entire program. I mentioned early in the program that we're certainly moving into summer. There's lots of health-related issues for uh, that we need to talk about uh, with that. Certainly, sun safety is one of those. Uh, we mentioned uh, the heat being uh, something that you need to think about, but also sun safety is one that's uh, incredibly important. Um, I know this personally. You know, I don't always uh, stick to the rules myself, I'm sad to say. So I got burned recently because I sort of forgot where I was outside and uh, had a bad, nasty sunburn with that. Um, so you do want to apply sunblock six months of age and up. Younger kids earlier than that, there's lots of uh, clothing or shade that you can produce either with a sunshade. Uh, as things open back up and you're going to the beach, you definitely want to think about that. Uh, a wide brim hat is another thing that can prevent that. Remember that the more sunburns you have, particularly less than age 18, the more likely you are uh, to have skin cancer later on in life. So make sure you're taking those precautions. Um, a lot of people have raised some concerns about some of the sunblocks out there causing cancer. Zinc oxide is a good alternative. Um, it's not one that's been associated with any cancers, uh, and it uh, tends to be sort of thick, though. So a lot of people say if they're going to be out for a long time, uh, they, don't, they don't like putting it on. That's one of those things, if you're from my era, you can remember back in the late 80s and early 90s, this zinc oxide that was colored that everybody had on. So we had pinks and purples and greens and all kinds of uh, fancy colors that uh, were all the rage then. Still works today. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your questions and uh, calls with any kind of health topic that you might be dealing with right now. We would love to hear from you this morning. Still a lot of time in the program to address those calls. Maybe it's not you. Maybe it's somebody in your family. You're welcome to do that for all ages. We will try to do our best to answer those this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Hazel. Good morning, Hazel. Good morning. 
Hey, I said you were from Meridian, but I think I got that wrong. Tell me where it's you're Sugarlock. from. Sugarlock. 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 Is that near, is that near Meridian? Um, we are like 45 miles north of Meridian. Okay, okay. It's in the, yeah, Scuba, Sugarlock. But yeah, anyway, okay. I, I, I have a question, Dr. Jimmy. Um, my husband, like, I think it was Friday or Saturday, he, he's 72 years old, and he, he does have heart disease, and he's diabetic. He put on a pair of socks that were a little tight, and they, these are over the calf. And that I think it was Friday night when he pulled them off. He had, like, a bright red rash around both calves. It's like six, six inches up above the ankle on both of them. And it was bright red, and it was itching really bad. So I put some itch cream on it. And he said that kind of helped, but he has still got that bright red rash. And to me, it looks like, I was thinking it was like contact dermatitis, but it's not itching as bad, but it looks like little busted vessels all over. It's kind of what it looks like, and it is raised a little bit. And I just was going to see what you thought about that. Yeah, that's, uh, thank you, Hazel, for that. I, so there are a couple of different things that this might be. Um so when he had the socks on, did he have long pants on or did he have shorts on? He had long pants on. And above the socks, right above them, he did have some swelling on both legs. Yeah. So a couple of things. It does help to know sort of what other uh, medical conditions he has. So with heart disease and with type 2 diabetes. Um, so it still could be a rash and contact dermatitis. That For those of you who don't know, that just means that something that comes into contact with your skin and you can have an allergic reaction to that. Or sometimes you can have bleeding uh, in small capillaries right underneath the skin or deposition of blood breakdown products that can cause a lot of itching. So the two most common things probably at his age and, um, and with those types of symptoms, uh, one is venous stasis disease. So venous stasis disease tends to be in the lower extremities. And really this is a a disorder of, of your veins don't work quite as well as they used to. Not the arteries, it's different than getting blood flow to those extremities. Mm -hmm. But then it's, it's the blood flow doesn't come back up like it should. And after blood pools in those areas uh, for a, a while, uh, you can have breakdown of red blood cells. And it has a substance called hemosiderin, which is just a breakdown product that can get deposited underneath the skin. They can be sort of bronzed. It almost looks like little spots that are bronzed. Sometimes it can get deep red, particularly if you're if you have more swelling in the lower extremities or if you've been out and about. The other thing that it, it concerns me a little bit about what you said is you can have a decrease in platelets, like we were talking about earlier, and you can have something called petechia. So petechia is bleeding, sort of pinpoint bleeding. It can be a little bit. Um, um, you know, it can be a little bit more widespread than that, but uh, petechiae can be raised like you described. Uh, they don't blanch when you push on them. So if you push on them with your thumb or your finger, they're not mm -hmm. going to go white. They're going to stay red or even purple. If, if that's the case, and even if it's not, I would probably get, you know, if, if it goes on more than a couple of days, I would probably right. uh, ask his physician about this, particularly with those other diagnoses. Because if he does right. have a platelet problem or the platelets have decreased in number, then that could affect some of the other problems that he has. 
And, I you know, it, it may not yeah. be that, but it would be an easy test to get to just look at right. his complete blood count to look and see what his platelet levels are. The only thing that was concerning me is since he's diabetic, you know, and has heart disease, he does take the blood thinner, um, you know, a lot of medicine. He takes a lot of medicine. And, but it's, it's still bright red and it does look like busted vessels, but it's raised and it looks like he's got socks on except they're red because it's right where his socks yeah. were. And that's why but it's right, I was thinking, it's right above the socks, right? It's not where the socks were. No, it's, it's, it looks like he's got socks on right where the, the socks were a little tight on him. And, gotcha. and that's what I'm saying. It's right where it looks like where he had the socks on. It looks like it made imprints on his skin. And it's all the way around where he, where the socks went. And they, you know, like, it's like six inches up above his ankle on both legs, right where the socks were. And he doesn't have yeah. anywhere else but there. Yeah, that's in, in petechiae, you know, bleeding when you have a little bit lower platelet numbers, uh, that can be, <clears throat> that, that can uh, occur in areas just like that. So it tends to be if there's constriction, uh, dependent areas of the body, uh, it, it would be an easy test to get just to make okay. sure his platelet levels are fine and have somebody, uh, you know, look at it. A little bit hard to do that on the radio just to look yeah. at it, but you gave a great <laughs> description though. Um, but that's what I would do if he was in my office and it looked like that. I probably would okay. get a complete blood count um, okay. and then continue to treat it like you're treating. It's not going to hurt to do some topical things on it um, okay. and some antihistamines okay. uh, to take for the for the itching. But you think since it's been like a week now, he does need to go and see his uh, primary care doctor and just make sure what it is. Yeah, I would. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, okay. once they look at it, they can tell a little bit better. But that's, again, that's probably what I would do is okay. and you know just do a little bit of blood work to make sure it's not something else. Okay. All right, Dr. Jimmy. Well, I appreciate you so very much, and you have a blessed day. You too. Thank you for calling. All right. Uh, let's go to Kay in Memphis. Good morning, Kay. I bet you thought you were rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, we're always my, glad to listen to you. My blood pressure says you're not. Uh, yes, <laughs> tell me what's going on this morning, Kay. I, well, my blood pressure's been doing pretty well, but yesterday, I, it just went low. It dipped, it, it, and it stayed that way, and I couldn't get in touch with my doctor, or nurse, or any anybody. And it was going down. Or, okay, I have, I have some readings here: eighty-two over forty-seven. Uh, 96 over 55, 90 over 52, three times, and I stopped taking it. Now, one of the reasons I was concerned about it, and I did not take my carpetolar because I understand that it has something to do with blood pressure, because I used to take the 250 at night, and my uh, doctor uh, divided it up half and half at night and half in the morning. So, well, what do you think is going on besides my? determination to live <laughs> <laughs> well okay uh you know we we talked about we've talked about blood pressure before blood pressure yeah, is not a static thing and unfortunately as you get older the mechanisms that help regulate that to make it go up slightly when you need it to go up and go back down uh they're not they don't work as well like other parts of our body so it's not unusual to have fluctuations in that as you get older that's probably one thing and those can be related to a number of things. It can be related to activity. It can be no, related to no, flu, no overall flu. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, repeat, that, your, repeat that, please. I butted in. 
it's okay. That can be, the blood pressure can go up and down for a number of reasons, like your fluid status, how, what types of foods you're eating. Uh, or it might be, you know, just as you get older, it, the body doesn't work as well. Uh, one thing I would caution you, though, is those blood pressure medica medications that you take, like the Carvedilol, I know you've taken amlodipine in the past. Um, those are long-acting blood pressure medications. And while it may be common sometimes if you have lower numbers to stop those, that's something you should always do in consultation with your physician. And I understand you're not able to contact them right now, but um, I would caution you on doing that because what can happen is if you stop those, your blood pressure may come down, but then you may go right back up really, really high. So you always need to talk to your doctor and, and those aren't medications too. Just the opposite can be true. If they're really high and you take amlodipine, uh, it's probably going to go down lower uh, within a day or two. So I'd just be cautious about that and try to get in touch with them with those variations. And if, well, you know, it's, it may be helpful to keep a diary of some things about your activity and the foods that you ate. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not uncommon to hold those medications if your blood pressure is that low. I agree that that's pretty low. That's way too low for your age. Um, to have a blood pressure that low, so they may need to do some adjustments on the dose or the types of medications that you're on. Well, let, let me say about my amlodipine. I, I checked, um, I took a ha half of one the other night, and I checked, and I have taken two out of my prescription that is now eight months old. I just do not have problems, but for some reason, my blood pressure went up to 191 over. Don't remember the, the diastolic, but I figured, I better take it. And it took about three hours. I lay down, and in about three hours, it was down to normal. And another time, I could tell it was going up, and I just took a half of one, and that took care of it. But my doctor knows that I don't take it anymore. I just, my blood pressure just never goes up that high. It's, yeah, and that may be why it went down so low, because again, those medications are not designed to quickly lower blood pressure, even though they might after you take it. They're long-term medications, and lodipine has a half-life of about 36 hours, which means it's going to last in your body when you're taking it regularly that long. So if you just take one or two, it might control your high blood pressure right then and there, but about a day or two later, you may notice that it goes down too low. So okay. you may just want to touch base with your physicians just to make sure that that's the kind of regimen that they want you on because they may want to do something a little bit different. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio. Or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. A lot of good calls about all kinds of different things. If you have a question, you can reach us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You want to encourage you, if you think of something after the program, or maybe you can't get to a phone right now, uh, please email us. We'd love to hear about your email questions. We try to respond to those directly, but we also like to respond to those on the air if we feel like that that is applicable to our larger listening audience. You can send those to remedy at mpbonline.org. I wanted to follow up with what uh, Kay was just saying about medications and why it's important that you um, that you let your, your healthcare provider, your physician know about those. Um, one of the reasons is because the more medications we take, the more potentials there are for interactions. And that also includes over-the-counter medications as well. There are common over-the-counter medications that you may not think would interact with other things that you're taking or your current medical conditions. But a, a good example is uh, antihistamine. Sometimes if you have bladder problems, particularly if you're older, not a good idea to take those because it could interfere with your bladder function. Uh, in most people, those are safe, and that's one of the reasons why we have over-the-counter medications. But there may be many different reasons why that's not a good idea. The other reason is the types of medications that you're on, the doses of them, uh, if you stop one of them or if you add something else, uh, oftentimes that can have bad side effects, even if it was something that you took in the past. Had a recent conversation with a patient who was uh, taking a medication in the past uh, for uh, for neuropathy. Uh, that's just a, uh, you know, a, a nerve condition, uh, in this case from her diabetes. She was wanting to go back on it, even though she'd been off for several months and was thinking about going back to the same dose. Uh, but I cautioned her, you know, in this particular medication, it's not a good idea to do that just because of the uh, side effects can be much more stronger uh, if you if you started back at the same dose. So always a good idea to talk to the professionals about that. Uh, and that's not just the physician. Certainly your pharmacist can be another person that you can talk to if you have any kind of questions about things. Uh, if you can't reach your physician, that's a great place to start. So just a bit of caution on that. Um, don't go play in doctor. Hey, we went to school a long time to learn how to do these things. And there's a good reason because we're trying to, you know, the first tenet of good medicine is primum non nocere in the Latin, which means, first of all, do no harm. So that's our primary goal is to not do harm uh, in our patients. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 Don't know about you, but I have had a ton of, I guess we've been invaded by horseflies and mosquitoes this year. Uh, everybody that I've talked to, just uh, the perfect conditions for breeding those. Uh, Lots of different ways to deal with those. Mosquito season is here among us. It's been here for a while, actually. I don't think it ever leaves in Mississippi. There's always, uh, there's never a month when you can't find a mosquito in Mississippi. Um, look Look at all of the areas of your house. You know, mosquitoes can breed in uh, just an inch or so of water. Uh, And that water can be in all kinds of different areas. If you have pots that have catch basins underneath them and water stays in that, they can certainly breed there. They can breed in other places too. Uh, try to get rid of those standing water areas as much as you can. 
uh, to eliminate their breeding. There are ways, and there's plenty of attractants out there. We've got these in our yard to try to get them away from the house. There's all kinds of different methods of trying to prevent mosquitoes in areas, you know, these little devices that have some, uh, some deterrence, which is usually a substance that's released, whether that's citronella candles or things like that. There's also some electronic devices that use, use butane to uh, release this in these little pads. Um, but one of the best ways is mosquito repellent on your body. So things that have DEET in it uh, can be very effective. DEET's been studied for a long time. It's very safe even in kids. Uh, if you don't want to use that, there are some other substances that are out there. Uh, lemon eucalyptus is one. You'll smell like a lemon zinger if you're familiar with that product. Uh, so people may, may not be uh, quite as apt to be around you, but that's been uh, looked at uh, fairly effective if you put that on you and doesn't have some of the other uh, side effects of uh, potential side effects of mosquito repellent. But keep that in mind. Uh, you know, clothing is important too that you wear. Uh, if you can, again, you have to sort of balance that with the temperature changes that are going on. Uh, right now in the south. Uh, you know, going back to sun safety too, you know, how, if you've got a sunburn, how do you deal with that? Um, particularly in children, you know, sometimes they'll come inside. Uh, that sunscreen we mentioned earlier, it's very important to get a sunscreen that provides adequate protection and to apply that in a way that covers all areas uh, that you might have sun exposure. You want to get an SPF factor of at least 15, so 15 to 30. I know there's others out there. I mentioned zinc oxide, which is almost total blockage while it's on you. Very thick substance um, that provides some protection. But really anything over 30, uh, if applied correctly and frequently, is going to be okay. Uh, every two hours is what's recommended for that. So don't forget you have to reapply, even for sunblocks that may have a, a listing on the label of being water resistant or sweat resistant. So those are very important to reapply. There are combination sunblocks and mosquito repellents. They may wash off and not wear, uh, you know, they may say that the mosquito repellent function can last all day, but you need to reapply it. Uh, don't just look at that part of it, look at the sunblock part of it also. Um, and if you're in the water or you're sweating a whole lot, you may need to reapply more frequently. So just keep that in mind. Don't wait till you're red. If you do get that sunburn, something cool like cool water, cool compress can be very effective in cooling you off uh, initially. Lots of other things you can put on the skin. Once you do that damage, though, it's very hard to deal with it. Don't forget about dehydration, too, because once you have a sunburn, if you're back out in the sun for any period of time after that, you're more susceptible to dehydration. So keep um, keep uh, uh, yourselves very uh, protected out there and think about those kinds of things. Unfortunately, we have a lot of diseases that are spread by mosquitoes in the South too. So there are some things that are still being seen. Uh, certainly West Nile is one of those, uh, created quite a scare some years ago, about 10, uh, 10 15 years ago, um, actually 20 years ago now that I think about it. But uh, I was an unlikely uh, or unhappy recipient of the West Nile, something you don't want to get, but it's still out there in the environment. So keep that in mind. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. 
For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app.